This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 426, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's the Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show right here on Drummer's Resource. And um, today, well, before I before I get in, I just want to do a quick public service announcement, which is... Um, that, you know, if you enjoy these podcasts, uh, I don't know exactly how you're listening to them, but please do uh, consider subscribing to Drummer's Resource Podcast on any of the services, um, Apple Podcasts, of course, and and there's a million others, uh, and, you know, uh, support by, by, by subscribing. And then you get the Drummer's Resource Podcasts every week, including this one, um, so I just wanted to start by giving that little bit of a public service announcement in support of uh, this wonderful Drummer's Resource uh, uh, entity and Nick Ruffini and all the great work that he does. And uh, it's supported me, so I want to support it. In any case, and if you are enjoying uh, these, then go uh, and uh, you know leave us a, a review as well. That, that means a lot, and it helps other people subscribe, uh, etc., etc. So today... Um, I'm going to talk about, well, I, I don't exactly know yet. Usually I record the podcast and then I come up with a title. Sometimes I know the title in advance, but I'm going to call it something like the truth about transitions. Maybe that's a little too obscure or doesn't get to the point. Um, but in my, uh, you know, my, my long career as a drummer, as an educator, um, there's a lot of consternation that comes up amongst drummers when it comes to transitions. And transitions could be a particular part of the song um, that you have to get in and out of. It could be how you get in between those various parts of the song. I think transitions can mean a lot of things, but it, it means generally going from part A to part B. So two of the most common transitions, and this is really what I'm going to focus on today, because I think these basic rules of thumb will cover all, a, a lot of other transitions, but the, the two that I want to really work on and focus on today are count-offs and fills. Now, you may not think of count-offs as, uh, as a transition, but really they are, because you're transitioning from, you know, no song into a song. And very often the count off is fraught with all kinds of problems uh, and can get the song off to a really terrible start. And some of these have to do with the drummer. Sometimes they don't have to do with the drummer, but it's worth uh, conversing. And a lot of drummers out there have a lot of problems with count offs. So we're going to talk about that. And of course, the other thing we're going to talk about, the other major transition that I want to address are fills. Uh, Fills, it's a huge subject. I'm probably just going to scratch the surface today, but I have uh, some thoughts about them that I think will will help in terms of how we frame even the way that we think about fills. So whether this is called the truth about transitions or dissecting what's going on, what's going on with fills, I don't know yet what I'm going to call it, but that's what we're going to talk about today. 
Um, and I, I sort of group these things into, uh, you know, what I call transitions. And it's funny because the word transition for me, I always take it back to my father. When I was a kid, um, my dad, who is a psychologist, so don't hold that against me, but uh, no, and he's a wonderful, wonderful guy, but he, he used to always use this phrase, transitions are difficult. And, uh, you know, so if, I don't know, I was having a hard time on something at school, or I was upset because it was Sunday night and I had to go back to school the next day, or, you know, whatever it may be, he he would often wax poetic. He would take the specifics of my problem and turn it into generalities of, of life, which is sort of what a psychologist is supposed to help you do, I guess, see things in the bigger picture. And he would often say, transitions are difficult. And although, you know, uh, it drove me crazy sometimes because it was like, you know, I wanted my dad to specifically give me advice about a, this specific issue instead of generalizing and saying transitions are difficult. He's absolutely right. And, and uh, you know, transitions in life are difficult, whether we're moving or we're getting married or we're getting breaking up or, you know, we're, uh, you know, going through an illness, you know, life's transitions um, are, are, are difficult and transitions in music are difficult. So, uh, maybe I'll call the episode transitions are difficult. I don't know, but in any case, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about these two large areas. And I want to start with count offs because as I said before, count offs are often fraught with all kinds of issues. Um, let's talk about some of the common problems that drummers have with count offs. Problem number one is that drummers often aren't sure of the right tempo. Um, So, you know, how do I know what the right tempo is of the song? Uh, Problem number two is that maybe, you know, in practice, in rehearsal, you come up with the right tempo, uh, but, and you feel good about it, uh, and you could do it in the context of rehearsal, but now here you are on the gig. Adrenaline is flowing. You got to go right from one song into the next, or you have very little time to stop and think about. You know, in rehearsal, you have that luxury of of time between songs. Um, so, you know, how are you going to to do to deal with that? Uh, how are you going to figure out what the right tempo is? Another issue related to countoffs is what happens if you, the drummer, you know, it's scary when the drummer is responsible for the countoff. But it's, it could also be scary if the drummer, if someone else is counting the tune off, because often, you know, they have a, a worse sense of time than we do, or they're less grounded to the time than we are. And so, you know, you may have, uh, you may have um, a, uh, uh, someone else starting the tune. And in this, the very first tour I ever, I ever did back in the early 90s, I'm not going to mention the artist, um, but uh, the artist insisted on counting off all the tunes. They were sort of the focal point of the band. And they would count them off and then literally start the song in another tempo. And it was then frustrating because, you know, I, as the drummer, would get that look. We're dragging or we're rushing. And it was like, well, you counted off the song and then you started playing it at a different tempo. So I actually would talk with the uh, other guys in the band. It was, uh, it was uh, you know... Uh, the bass player and the second guitar player and try to figure out we all knew this was going on and in fact before i even went on this tour another drummer who had worked with this artist earlier um 
warned me about this and said, you better, you know, bring like a beatbox or a, a song, whatever they call it, uh, song starter or beat, I think beat, beatbox, um, you know, bring that with you on the tour, which of course I didn't do. And it wasn't that big of a deal, but there were, there were, you know, you sort of had to compensate for that. So what happens, um, you know, in, in that situation? And so, um, so here are some solutions to that. Uh, the first is what I just mentioned, that you can use technology. And certainly in the world we live in today now, in the 21st century, we're almost two decades into the 21st century, uh, and many bands use a lot of technology. So a lot of bands have backing tracks, um, and your problem is kind of solved that way um, because it's... Uh, it's it's you know it's it's easy to to deal with um and uh and oftentimes if other band members are willing if there is conflict about the tempo because that's something else that can frequently happen is where does the tempo feel right and sometimes you know you put it where you know that's a good pocket but then other members of the band they want it to feel faster and is that really are they really doing service to the tempo or is it because of their own internal uh, insecurities that um, they need it to, say, feel faster? And that's, that's another tough situation for us to be in when it comes to tempo because, you know, we've got our ideas about what feels right. Uh, other members of the band have their ideas. And it should be that everybody is trying to service the song and say, let's choose a tempo that's the right tempo for this song, where this song is going to feel good. This is... And even... a earlier discussion, what do we want this song to feel like? What's the feel, you know, of of the song? Not just the metronomic tempo, but the feel. Does we want it to lean forward? Do we want it to feel laid back? Um, All these kinds of things. Uh, And sometimes there's there's conflicts that that it's hard to resolve. So um, technology can really help with that. If you all sit down and say, yes, this is the tempo I want, you use the technology when you're playing live. Um, certainly, of course, you could use that technology in a studio, uh, tweak the click. But, um, you know, so that's one solution. And also then that alleviates you, the drummer, from having to count the tune off. You just hit the button, the click goes, everybody's, you know, there. So that's sort of the simplest solution. But what happens if, you know, you're subbing on a band or... Um, the band set changes every night and maybe they call the tunes based on requests or they call the tunes based on what they're feeling or they always want a different set list, you know? Um, so you may not always have that luxury, uh, especially if it's a band that you don't play with all the time. So another solution, which is, which is an interesting one is, uh, and this is, this is one that, you know, the great drummer, Mark Schulman, I did a, uh, I hosted a camp, uh, we called it the Triple Threat Drum Camp, and it was Mark Schulman, Bruce Becker, and myself. We did this a few years ago in California. And I learned a lot from co-hosting this camp with these other two guys, who are both amazing drummers and amazing educators. And Mark Schulman told this story about how he actually memorized every, like, you know, physically memorized every single click between very slow and very fast. So you could say, you know, 128 and he would tap out 128 and he was confident that he knew those tempos that well and that had stemmed from an experience where he had auditioned for a big name artist when he was young and uh didn't get the gig because he couldn't 
lock into count offs, couldn't lock into to tempos. So um, that's one solution. Now, it's a little extreme. Uh, so, you know, I personally uh, find that there are little mnemonic devices I can use to help me to remember tempos or, or memorize tempos. For example, um, if you think of John Philip Sousa, Stars and Stripes Forever, da, 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 da. that's about 120, okay? So 120 is a very useful tempo to have memorized or to know because, um, you know, if you think about uh, 120, uh, that's a, a, a march tempo, and it's, it's a tempo that people can easily walk to. It's a good pace. So if somebody can easily walk to something, they can easily dance to something. So a lot of dance tempos are around 120. And if you, you know, are playing, uh, whether it's actual dance music or, you know, something like that, um, you could use the Stars and Stripes Forever technique. Um, I think uh, Staying Alive is somewhere around there as well. Um, but it's... It's uh, you can you can create a whole bunch of different songs that are at a variety of different tempos that you know those songs very well, and you can you can uh, um, use those as as sort of guideposts for approximate tempos. Um, a, a favorite sort of solution of mine, which is more old school, but is if you have a song to sing the chorus because the chorus generally in this. Uh, you know, or sing a part of the song that is the most recognizable part of the song. Sometimes, if we're thinking only about the intro of the song, we we may not be able to lock into it. But if we think about the chorus of the song, take a deep breath for 10 seconds or two seconds, and sing the chorus to yourself, that can really help you to lock into um, into into what's happening. Uh, and 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 so start with the chorus, and then from there go to the intro of the tune. Now, I'd mentioned something about, you know, you, you, this is another issue with count-offs, is that you may be right based on the actual BPMs, you know, the, the, the count, but you may not grasp the feel of the tune. And I remember very clearly uh, playing some song that Steve Gadd had played drums on, um, you know, it was some, some tune, and you know, I thought I knew the tune, I thought I knew the tempo, I thought I knew the feel. And when I went back, you know, and sometimes you you don't go and reference the tune. Maybe it's a song you've been hearing for years on the radio, you know it really well, or you've been playing it for years. Um, but I, you know, I just wasn't nailing this. And I'm like, but the tempo was right, you know, so what am I missing in my count off? So, um, what you might be missing is the way that the song has to feel. And for a lot of those kind of 70s recordings, say you're playing classic rock music, a lot of those uh, 1970s songs have this very heavy kind of a thing going on with them. That was a very popular way to play a song in the 70s, was to have this very laid-back, deep, thuddy kind of a pocket. Steve Gadd, of course, being one of the, the premier 
uh, uh, session guys or Jim Keltner, you think about, um, who were on a zillion records at that time. And, you know, 70s music, they had these dead drums. They were all still basing everything on what Ringo and the Beatles really had pioneered in the latter half of their career when they were locked in the studio and, and recording. And that became the template, the, the, the model upon the blueprint upon which so much of 70s rock was based. And so, you know, I wasn't taking that into account when I was trying to play these various songs or this song that had Steve Gadd on it, I remember uh, more clearly. So, you, you know, what I tend to do, I mean, I don't get, here in New York these days, I don't get a lot of rehearsal time. It's not like I, you know, have three or four rehearsals with a band before I play with them. Uh, very often, if it's a jazz type of a gig, I don't have any rehearsal. You just go in and do it. Um, I also play a lot of shows. Um, so, for example, um, there's a, a club here called 54 Below, and uh, they have 54 Below plays the music of. And <clears throat> I did an Elton John show, and I did... Um, you know, a variety of these different shows where you'll take, say, the music of one artist, and then you have many singers who come in, and they'll do uh, some song from that artist's repertoire. So, okay, these are all Elton John songs, but, you know, they all have their particular feel to them, and sometimes these artists, they have a very specific way that, that they want to do the arrangement. So I'm, I know these tunes, but I'm also, you know, going to make notes in my, you get one rehearsal on a situation like this. You come in in the afternoon, you get one two-hour rehearsal, and each artist runs through their song. Maybe they don't even get to go through it a whole time. They run through it once. And the rehearsal, you don't have to worry about nailing it. The idea is to listen, try things, make adjustments while you're playing, and take notes. And generally, I'm, you know, I'm on these shows, uh, I've got charts. Um, which, again, doesn't really necessitate the tempo of the song or the feel. It may have a metronome marking, but um, the the idea is I make notes at the beginning of the chart, so uh, maybe we run through it once and the singer says, yeah, that's a little fast. So, Or the musical director says, yeah, let's make sure this this leans back. I write those notes so that when we get to that song, the first thing I do, look in the upper left corner next to the tempo marking or next to the um, the the uh, the style marking you know medium medium rock or uh, Latin or whatever and I really try to not only what is the tempo but also what is the feel and if it's me counting off I'm going to try to feel that feel and one thing you could do is sort of air drum the tempo and this is a a great solution Jim Keltner used to do this this is um, I heard a story about Keltner that he would get up and before he even touched the drums he would spend a minute air drumming the part that he was going to play. Say he was in the studio. Of course, time is money in the studio, so you don't have all day to fool around with these things. And this is one of the things that made Keltner, you know, and continues to make him one of the great studio drummers. So this is a great trick. Physically manifest what you're going to be playing. That way your body's already getting used to it before you even start playing it. So I'll do that. I'll sort of air drum my way in, you know, into the tune, try to get my body to start moving the way that I want it to move in order to capture the essence or the feel of the song before I count it in. So, um, you know, uh, sort of to, to, you know, 
summarize all these different solutions or tactics about counting off. Um, what, whichever of these you use, whether it's technology or you memorize the tempos or you use a mnemonic device like the John Philip Sousa thing or, you know, you write notes to yourself um, or, you, you know, any of them, um, you must, here's the, here's the overall writing message about count-offs. You must be in the song before you count it off. You must be in the song before you count it off. And that's um, a, a, a very very important uh, point to make here. So whichever of these things is happening, you got to be inside that song. You have to be playing the song before you even start it, counting it. And if you are inside that song, then what you count will be truth. It will be truth. Okay? So, um, you know, some, some key points about count-offs. I do want to make two more points about count-offs because uh, that, that are not so much how to count off, but related to count-offs. Um, and uh, when you count, so this is, the, this is the first one, when you count, you must count loudly and forcefully so the entire band can hear it. I do a four-day, as many of you know, I do a four-day jazz intensive here in New York City. Um, by the way, the dates of the next intensive, I'm pretty sure, are June 7th through 10, 2019. So put it on your calendars now. We're just um, putting some of the final touches, and then we're going to open registration very early this year. But June 7th through 10, it's a Friday through Monday, uh, 2019. All right. So at my jazz intensive, we get the, the drummers to get up and work with a trio. And um, I put the onus of counting off the tune on them. So, you know, they're going to get up and they're going to try a lot of stuff, different, different things, different ideas, or they're going to try a song. And most of the drummers are really bad at counting off. Uh, they either count off one tempo and start playing another. But the important point I want to make here is they count off like they're mumbling or they're talking to themselves or they're not looking at the band. When you count off, you got to make sure everybody's ready. And then when you count it off, loud, clear, bell-like tone and lay it down. It, people having confidence in you as the drummer doesn't begin when you start playing. It begins when you start your count off. So if you go through all this stuff that I was talking about and you um, are ready to go, and, you know, sometimes you got to say, look, everybody ready? Let's do this. You know, you got to get people's attention. Um, when, when we would, um, uh, when, when I was out on tour with Brian Setzer, I would count off the opening tune because Brian was not on stage yet. He would count off all the rest of the tunes. But the opening tune, we always started behind a curtain. And I had to time my count off to when you know, that curtain was coming up, which was timed with the end of the house music and the lights coming down. And, you know, they would announce in my headphones or my, my in-ear monitors, um, you know, okay, house lights going down and we have curtain, you know, and the rest of the band better be looking at me. And I'd be like, hey, I would scream. It's 18 guys. So I'd be like, here we go. You know, you got to get people's attention when you count off, however it is. You cannot expect that they're paying attention to you. So loud, clear, bell-like tone, prepare yourself for the count off, be ready to go, and then jump in. Now, one last point about count offs. 
if if the count off is bad or the band comes in at a at a absolutely wrong tempo and it's going to be a total train wreck don't be afraid and this is for when you're on stage performing don't be afraid to stop and start over again i'm sure every person listening has been to a concert with a famous artist major artist where that has happened and the the good artists are okay with that they're willing to for the sake of the song if it's really going to be a disaster to stop and say, oh, okay, all right, hold on a minute. Let's try this again, right? Now, of course, if, if the whole, you know, if it's a pop show, if it's Lady Gaga or, you know, something where everything's on a click, you can't do that. You know, all the lights are timed and all the cues and the videos and whatever else. But it's better to, you know, and again, I'm not suggesting you do this on every song. You, sh- you know, you should be prepared. But it's okay. The audience will forgive you. I think they'll forgive you if you stop and start again and get it right than if you if if you jump into it in the wrong tempo and now you're going to have problems the whole way through. So that's another piece of advice that that I uh, am am a, a supporter of. Okay, so unbelievable. 24 minutes have already gone and by and we've just been talking about countoffs. So obviously there was a lot to say in that particular uh, category. So let's move on now to the other second half of this podcast, which I'm going to talk about fills. Again, fills, it's a, it's a huge uh, issue to converse, so I'm probably not going to get to everything about it. But um, it's another area where drummers have a lot of problems, and even very experienced drummers. Obviously, when you're first starting, you know, you see a beginner drummer, and they'll go into a fill, and they come out of it and they're at a totally different tempo than when they went into it or they go into the fill and they completely change tempo in the fill and then they then they then they don't know how to get back to the song and this this is not only a problem for beginning drummers this is a problem for very experienced very experienced drummers because it's more subtle of course um but it is most definitely a problem and it can definitely affect what happens when you bring that to a band? I think the most common example is when, and I'm thinking rock here, but I'm going to talk about rock and I'm going to talk about jazz or music that straight eighth music versus sort of swung eighth music or, uh, you know, rock versus more improvisational music. Um, but, uh, you know, the biggest issue uh, that affected me affected a lot. It affects a lot of people un- until you sit down and address it and work on it. Is say you're playing a fill, you know, crash, and then you come back to that end of one for the next, the beginning of the next phrase, and you get there a little late because the way you crashed. And so, too many times, drummers underestimate how important that transition of getting into a fill and getting out of a fill um, is. Uh, I think in general, drummers from the very beginning tend to think of fills as something separate from the groove. And that's a big problem because uh, we then practice fills separately we practice them by themselves, and we don't practice them in the context of the music. And then when we go to put them in the music, we wonder why things aren't working. So, you know, uh, the one, one phrase that is 
so important that I repeat over and over to my students, and I must give credit to Peter Erskine, who's the person I learned this from, the great Peter Erskine, who had a book called Everything is Timekeeping. I'm pretty sure it's called Everything is Timekeeping. It might be called Timekeeping is Everything, but I think it's called Everything is Timekeeping. And this is, this is a great concept that must truly be addressed by all of us if we're going to successfully negotiate transitions and really do it well and be able to, you know, if we, again, we might be playing that fill and playing it fine and we don't even realize we're getting back to the end of one. And that affects us. Maybe the musicians you're playing with, they don't know what the problem is. All they know is, eh, that guy's, his time isn't all that great. We're going to go with this other guy. And you may lose gigs. You may lose work. You may lose employability. You may lose the opportunity of a lifetime because you never really thought about that. You just kind of plowed on through, which is what we do so often as drummers. We don't analyze things, break them down, really listen to ourselves analytically, analytically, right? And so that's one of the things I feel with my students. I must throw these things in their face. Um, and I, not in a bad way, but it's just so vital when we're talking about fills. So obviously, timekeeping is very important. Uh, and then when we learn fills, we must learn them in the context of timekeeping. So what I'm going to talk about now is the way that I teach fills. And I'm going to talk about that in a rock setting and then talk about it in, a, in like I said, more of a jazz setting or a swing setting because those are two sort of different worlds, but almost you know, many kinds of musics will sort of fall within those realms, straight athy versus swung athy, uh, part-oriented versus improvisationally oriented. So let's start with rock, since most drummers out there are rock drummers. And um, if he, here's how I sort of get people to start thinking about fills. We're, let's just say we're going to design and build fills out of the timekeeping, starting with very, 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 very simple fills. So what I first do, and I have a whole way of doing this that I'm not going to go into now, but I have a whole sort of timekeeping workout that I, I a, a boot camp of timekeeping that I put my students through. And I'm not going to um, get into the details of that. But what I will say is that it's slow. And, and for those of you who know me or have followed my Facebook page, I talk a lot about if you want to be able to play fast, you've got to play slow. And I, I can't, I'm going to go back and see if there's a podcast. I'm pretty sure I have addressed this in a previous podcast. But the idea is that you must, you know, when you play slow, you're able to really negotiate things, figure things out when there is a large amount of space there. And if you can get comfortable with that, then when you compress and, de- you know, subtract the amount of space in between what you're playing, meaning your tempo is increasing, that you're going to have clarity, real clarity to what you're doing. So what I would suggest is to go through this idea of creating fills, start very slow. Uh, play just a, the most basic rock groove. Uh, cat. Uh, cat. Maybe about there. Uh, cat. And as you do this, begin to think about, and of course we all do this, but Start to think about one and three on the kick and two and four on the snare. In the world of rock and roll, those are the pillars of our timekeeping. That's what we build everything else off of. If you think about it, 90, 
shall we say, 95 to 98, 99% of all grooves are based on that one groove. And again, the problem with most drummers is they learn that groove, they can play it, they can make it sound kind of like it's supposed to sound, but then, of course, immediately we want to play it fast, we want to add fancy combinations, you know, whatever. And that, that immediately then distracts us from the fact that we never really learned that original groove as well as we should have to begin with, right? And therein begins all the problems. <laughs> so that's more of a timekeeping thing. But suffice to say, start and by simply playing time slowly and simply. And almost think about one and three and two and four and just feel them. Mm. You might sing the space between one and 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 think about how you're setting up for the next kick drum beat or the next snare drum beat. And uh, there's another thing I do a lot with my students is we count the space. We articulate the parts of the groove or the timekeeping where we are setting up, not where we're playing, not where we're actually making contact, but where, what are we doing in the space? Because that, in my opinion, is where the important stuff happens, okay? So you're setting this up. So the first quote-unquote fill you're going to play, again, in a rock setting, is a crash on beat one. Because beat one, you know, uh, it's again something we take for granted. Now, if you've ever seen Bernard Purdy do a clinic, and, and people ask him, what's the most important thing in music? You don't even have to ask him. He's going to tell you. And what he's going to tell you is beat one. And a lot of people just laugh and go, oh, Bernard Purdy, he's in his 80s, so he's obviously nuts. And, uh, you know, show me the Purdy shuffle, man. No, Bernard Purdy, as one of the greatest and most prolific studio drummers of all time, and one of the funkiest drummers of all time, a man who in his 80s continues to do countless sessions here in New York and is beloved on the many hits that he played on, this guy is not making stuff up. Beat one is so critical. Beat one in Western music is everything. It's the beginning of phrases. It's the first beat. It's the most powerful beat. It's the most dominant beat. And if you play a crash on beat one without truly knowing where beat one is, or every time you hit that crash, beat one's in a little bit of a different place, then you've already lost the game. Okay, so when I say one and three on the kick, two and four on the snare, take 10 minutes before you even play that crash. Take, take two hours. You know, I told this story, I think, about uh, when I did this uh, session for uh, Graham Russell from Air Supply. And I, you know, power ballads. I talked about power ballads and space, and that's when all this came up. I'll, I'll try to find that, um, uh, that, sesh, that uh, episode number. But um, I was, you know, I spent three days, three or four hours a day playing incredibly slow grooves and, and very slow fills so that when I could, when I went in for this very clutch session, you know, we had about an hour to get the whole rhythm section done for the whole song. And it was very slow. You know, that's a hard thing to do. So like I said, if you know playing slow, if you want to do anything, play slow, play slow, practice slow. I cannot um, over and over stress sort of what what the story is there, uh, how important that is. Anyway, crash on beat one. Get to know beat one in a new way. When you play the crash, 
Watch the direction you're playing the crash in. Some people just whack at it any old way. Try and, as you come up, to create a glancing blow in a direction that's going to send you back to the hi-hat. If you're on the ride, figure out a way to crash in a way that as you come through and out of that crash, you're already on your way back to the ride, whatever the timekeeper is. Movement and motion are very important because what we are doing behind the drums is dancing, right? We're not, you know, drummers are so stupid about this, I'm sorry to say, but we don't think of ourselves as dancers or as athletes. You know, how many drummers have I met who are like, oh man, I don't dance? It's like, well, maybe you should. You know, maybe you should practice dancing because you're getting your limbs to move together. So athletics is another example. Martial arts is another example um, of ways that we can begin to get whole systems of our body working together. But when it comes to crashing, it's a choreography, how you set up, how you move, how you lift, so that when you come down on that symbol, it's part of a process. It's not like a time stops when you crash. Too often, we don't think either up to the crash or after the crash. Uh, So, you know, we see a fill written on a piece of paper and the fill ends on the uh of four. So we, in our mind, go, okay, it's going to end. But in reality, that uh of four four is is, is, is only to get you to the next one. What are we saying is the most important beat. So any fill that you play, you must not interrupt the flow of one and three on the kick and two and four on the snare. So, uh, ah, uh, ah, crash, ah, uh, ah, crash. Always feeling that, mm, ah, mm, ah, whatever you happen to be doing. And Playing a fill must not interrupt that flow. And that's what I think about when I'm playing a rock groove. I'm locking into those absolutely essential pulse beats. And everything I do relates to those. Okay? So work on your crash. And then, by the way, once you're done with your crash, a lot of people think that the crash is the end of the phrase. Crash. Oh, yeah, i got to keep playing. And that's where those problems come in about getting to the end of two you know, or sorry, the end of one, that next hi-hat beat. So practice that. Crash and two and three and four and crash and two and crash and four and crash and crash and crash and. You see what I'm saying? Make that an exercise. Sing that. Spend two days just working on that alone. If you can fix that problem in your playing, you're going to be a thousand times more employable. Just crash and. I swear to God, it's such a big problem for drummers. You come back and you're off the click a little, and now you're off everything. Everyone in the world can feel that. And that's why when people walk in to a, you know, see band A, they're like, they're, yeah, they're cool. They're all right. And then they see band B, who may have the same set list, the same songs, the same tempos. They've thought about these things, and people go, I love this band. Why? Because it's hitting them on a deeper level. And if you're just a little bit late, if your crash on beat one is a little off, or the way you get back on the end is a little off, every time you're, you're throwing people off the groove. You're not really playing a deep groove. You're not really moving people. You're not really grabbing people. You're off. Okay? So um, 
that is a fill. It crashed on beat one, and it is the most important fill in the rock setting, okay? Now, once you spend a lot of time on that, I'm serious, a day on that, you're going to start to feel things differently. You're going to start to feel more connected to what you're doing. And then you could begin to build off of that. So the first way you might build is to try your crash on beat one in some different spots around the kit. Put up a couple different crash symbols or three crash symbols in different spots and practice moving to those places and then moving back to your timekeeping, whether your timekeeping is on the ride or the hi-hat. Okay? Um, You know, Get your crash to be fully formed. The other thing I wanted to say about crashes is crash through the symbol, right? A lot of times, and, you know, it's, it's hard. Some people like to set up their symbols high for aesthetic purposes, or they set them up completely flat for aesthetic purposes. If you don't, you know, what I would do is even if you set up your symbols that way, don't do that when you're practicing crashes. Learn how to crash a symbol first, and then move stuff around so you could still apply those things. So, you know, tilt your crash a little towards yourself like most people do. And then you're striking a glancing blow. So you're moving through the crash. You're not ending at the symbol. You're moving through it on your way back to your timekeeper. I guess that's just a, a corollary point. But it's an important point about transitions, meaning symbol or fills. Okay, so... Once you get all this stuff squared away, literally with a crash on beat one, now let's try a simple fill just on your snare drum. And let's just try two sixteenth notes on the anda of four. So boom, bap, boom, bap, the good crash. Bap, right? Try a simple fill that comes up all the time in what you do. Um, and again, Spend some time with this. Analyze this. Think about it this way, people. There's only 16 16th notes per bar. There's only eight eighth notes per bar. If you can take those last two 16ths and develop a perfect, beautiful fill, to crash, right? Now you've mastered two of the 16 16th notes. And in reality, you've actually mastered the and does of one, two, three, and four. So by focusing, you might think, well, that's just one fill. There's so many fills out there. Trust me, taking a small part, pulling it out, analyzing it to death is going to have tremendous impact on how you deal with all of this, okay? So now with this crash, try that and remember your and. crash and t did the crash and t- that's what you should be singing to yourself okay now what you want to think about is those two sixteenths they must be even sonically meaning you can't go do bat crash right or papa crash papa crash no boom remember everything is timekeeping if you're spelling out the and uh of four you must play the and uh of four so they must be even sonically so there's clarity to what you're playing. You may think you're playing da da crash, but it might sound like da da crash, da crash, right? We've all listened back to ourselves and gone, that's not what I was trying to say, right? Your, your little 16th film must also be even uh, spatially, da da, da da. So it really spells out what you're trying to play. Are you playing time, or are you just throwing a couple of notes in there randomly and hoping for the best? And I would have to say a lot of drummers, it's the latter, okay? Now maybe 
Play four sixteenths. Crash. Two, two, three. Crash. And two, and three. Crash. And two. Right? Everything leads to something else. Nothing is an ending. Nothing is an ending. Nothing is a beginning. One and three on the kick, two and four on the snare. Everything else must hang off of these, um, off of these these pulse beats in a rock scenario. You know, it doesn't. It's um, doesn't matter what else is going on. Just pull all this off out for the moment and begin to develop that. Now, I had for years and years problems when I would play that kind of a fill, to crash or to crash on my floor tom because a floor tom operates differently than a snare drum. A snare drum's in front of you. It's very bouncy. It's very clear. Its attack is very clear. You go over the floor tom, things get muddy, right? You're, it's in a different, more awkward positioning, and it's far away from your hi-hat, and you may reach up and crash a cymbal. Now you've got to get back to that hi-hat on the other side. So practice this on your floor tom. Practice it on a rack tom. You know, then... And you'll find, okay, I got to get that same clarity, crash, on the floor tom. You know, then slowly begin to add a little bit more. Practice between, you know, a couple of toms. Um, And slowly build and develop your fills. This is the point I'm getting at. Build them out of your timekeeping. So the most important thing is your timekeeping. And the only thing you're doing with your fill, it's not about fancy. It's about putting it into the context of timekeeping. Everything is timekeeping, okay? I promise you, as I said earlier, you will have tremendous results if you focus on developing your fills this way. Now, for example, try straight eighth groove and put in some triplets. That's going to open up a whole other kettle of fish because now you're not you're not dividing the beat into even pieces, eighth notes or sixteenth notes. You're dividing it into triplets. And you'll find out a whole lot of other stuff is going on, uh, you know, that that uh, is going to flummox you. But again, if you do these things with it, not just randomly and not just hopefully, and maybe I'll get it this time, if you practice it and, you know, these ideas. Eighth notes is even harder for drummers. One, two, three. Do 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 crash and two do do you know that kind of a fill that kills drummers. Drummers don't like that. There's too much space in that fill. Drummers want to do stuff that fills up the time because it's easier for us to do. It's easier for us to do. But there's a lot of songs out there that is not going to fly as a fill. You can't put 16th note fills in if there's no 16th notes in the song. In other words, you know, there's a lot of songs out there. And again, this is something that Gad is such a master at, is playing these fills with all this space. You can't, you know, that's, you're getting in the way of the song. You're not supporting the song. So, you know, practice eighth note fills, simple eighth note fills. And, um... Once you kind of begin to get some of these ideas happening, then move it into specific songs, specific repertoire that your band is doing. So don't just play through the song. Find the spots where the fills are in that song. Set up the the right tempo, the right groove, and then practice those fills. We all know which songs are the ones that screw us up. And if you don't, record yourself along with the song. You know, just put the song on the headphones 
hit play and play the whole song through and record it into your phone. And when you listen back, you'll probably be shocked at all the inconsistencies that you're hearing. So again, don't be critical, be analytical, and, and really take some time with this. All right, so now let's flip-flop, and the last bit I want to talk about today is Phil's in more of a jazz situation. Uh, and this is a trickier thing to deal with because oftentimes when you're playing, say, jazz, you know, straight-ahead jazz, what is a fill and what is timekeeping? Um, timekeeping in and of itself is a more complex scenario because you're doing what's called comping. So in a rocks-type scenario, the difference when you're playing a fill, when you're playing the groove, is more clearly delineated. In jazz, it's all wrapped up in one. So I'm going to simplify things because this is what I always encourage my students to do. And we're going to talk about groove playing because in most cases in jazz, if you play that, you know, good time and then again enhance based on the time, that's the way to start. I always tell drummers, you know, who think, oh, in order for, to be, for me to be a jazz player, I have to spend, you know, 10 years working out of the Ted Reed book and the Jim Chapin book and the John Riley books and all that stuff. I say hogwash. You can be, I tell this to my students at my intensive, you could be a really good jazz drummer with almost next to no technique in terms of comping ideas or fills. You can, if you go and sit in and play beautiful time, and I talk about creating time in the context of what I call the throw-up exercise, which looks at the historical evolution of what I call the American pulse. There's a whole um, uh, uh, episode I did about about the throw-up exercise. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but you don't need a lot of other technical facility to make something swing. And most people, when they're quote-unquote playing jazz, they're either playing like a blues shuffle, meaning just a, a groove that shuffles, or they're playing uh, a song like um, you know a Frank Sinatra-type song or a Van Morrison uh, moon dance-type song, where you don't, you're not playing bebop, you're just playing a swinging groove. So in that scenario, the type of fills you're more likely to play are what I call transitions. Um, in my book, The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming that I put together with Zorro, uh, each chapter has a, and it's basically a book, the instructional part of the book is about shuffle playing. So uh, each chapter, there's three, there's four chapters. The first three chapters, e- each of the first three chapters has a section on fill playing. And the very first chapter relates to the earliest chronological historical part of the book, which is 1940s R&B, which came out of big band drumming. Remember, big band and swing of the 1930s was pop music. It was dance music. Drummers were playing mostly groove, just like rock drummers today. And I think today when people learn jazz, they forget that that was the original job of the drummer, and they're so busy trying to learn fancy limb independence combinations that they, again, miss the forest for the trees, that it's the groove that will get them employed and will get them playing with good jazz musicians. You don't need a lot of chops, okay? So, um, in in the Commandments book, this first chapter, R&B, 1940s, uh, I have this little section uh, where I talk about what I call transitions. And these are very simple fills that are something like this. Say you're playing your groove. Those kind of transitionary fills come up all the time in swinging situations, whether you're playing a blues shuffle or you're playing Van Morrison 
uh, moon dance, like I said, or you're playing more uh, straight ahead type of jazz, or you're playing like Frank Sinatra type of tune. And those are the fills. You you see it every time. Drummers go, they leave the timekeeping to play those fills, and everything falls apart. They don't get back to the one properly. They don't get back to the timekeeping. Something as simple as do, 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 do. That's hard to do. It's harder to do than a rock type of fill to, to crash because the all of the fill ideas are in they're they're shuffled. They're in swung. They're using swung eights. So da da da. The spacing of that is very tricky, and it must be practiced. And also, what hand do you start on? Da da da. Now you got to get back to one. And when you're playing jazz or something that swings, you're not just crashing. You know, one, you got to get subtly back up, but you still got to lay in one. Remember, what's the most important beat? One. (laughs) One. I can't stress it enough, people. One. Listen to Bernard Purdy. So, um, you, it's, it's the same basic idea. Um, and maybe what I'll even do is I'll, I'll scan that page and put it up on the show notes page or put a link to it so you can see what I'm talking about. It's simple ideas. It literally starts, again, with beat four. So, ding, jig, jig, one, jig, three, pap, one, jig, three, jig, one, jig, three, pap, um. Now, again, you want to think about the one. So we look, it's beat four, ding, jig, ding, pap, and we nail four. And then we we forget what comes after. So sing it. Next one. And I actually, again, have my students articulate one. You're not going to crash on beat one like you would in rock, but you must define beat one clearly. And too often people play those little fills and then they get back into one and the whole thing's squishy. Where's one? You know, you're you're sort of outlining one, but now you've you've lost the rest of the band. So you must put you must know where one is, and then every fill that you develop, um, um, that's hard to do. There's many ways to to do the sticking for that. You know, one of my favorites that took me years to learn. And what you got to do there is because it's a three-note fill, you have to start it on your uh, non-dominant hand. So, you know, uh, for most drummers, that'd be your left hand. Left, right, left, right. That's very difficult to do. Um, We're so used to starting our fills with our dominant hand. So, um, and then the the next one after that, you know, now you start that on your dominant hand. Uh, but what if you started on your non-dominant hand? What are you going to do then? So you've got to practice playing these ideas, starting them on different hands, and figuring out what to do. So when you're in the heat of the moment, whichever option you choose, and you have options you know, with which to play these things, you're not going to get stuck. Because there's nothing worse than going into a, a little fill like that, a little transition, and realizing you're going to come out on the wrong hand. And most of us, that flummoxes us, and we drop the time. Even if it's only a, a few milliseconds, we drop the time. So, um, you know, those are, um, an, another example is like, uh, we, we combine our, our snare and our kick. So one, two, three, four, one, two, three, kabat, right? Kick snare, kabat, abat, boom, chick, well, we need to actually feel our way through that whole thing. Abat, zoom, 
Even if we're not playing, you know, and four and one, we've got to somehow still sing and feel and account for the and four. Otherwise, we're going to get there early. So a lot of drummers do this. Ding, 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 And they just get there early because they're not accounting for that empty space. You could take that little figure and make an exercise out of it where you do that on every beat or every other beat. Do it with a uh, do it with a click. You know, do it with music. Do it over and over again. Uh, I remember when I was when I would practice uh, some of these fills. I would actually when I would be you know I was really getting all this together during my years with Royal Crown Review. The first years I was in the band and trying to you know humble myself and realize that I was not all that and that I had a lot to learn and you know. I began to really, that's when I really began to humble myself to the groove because, you know, rhythm and blues shuffle pockets are powerful if they're played right. And most people don't play them right. You know, just like most people don't play rock grooves right. But it's easier to get by with a groove where all the notes are evenly spaced than when on a groove where, you know, they're not they're they're staggered as they are in a in a swung eight situation. So I would literally I mean this this may not, you know, we'd be on long tours, we do 60 shows in 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 you know, or 50 shows in 60 days and I would just spend like a whole song. I'd be like, you know, every night that fill on that song or I'm just not liking how I get in and out at this tempo. I would literally spend that would be the only fill I would play on that song. And after every four bar phrase I would go dum or dum or um you know as long as it maybe wasn't the most musical thing but i i was trying to you know do some on the job on the job learning and i found that that was very powerful and um and and very helpful to me uh in terms of understanding these styles and becoming a better swing drummer uh, in in that context and and that's helped me in many other contexts i mean now because the way i swing that's what i get hired to do a lot in the world of music and i get hired to to play jazz and and you know i'm in in that world here in new york so there's a lot of opportunities but i think this these lessons are applicable if you really consider your transitions and if you consider this phrase everything is timekeeping that you must build your fills out of your groove playing and really get straight on what are the elements of that groove playing and how can you fit those fills into those elements of groove playing so that everything is glued together and everything comes from the same place, not two different worlds, fill world and timekeeping world, you know. And so the last thing I want to say, we've been talking about practicing things. One more point about count-offs is that you can practice your count-offs the way you practice these fills. So you start from nothing and you go one, two, one, two, three, good day, good dum, or one, two, one, two, bratten, bratten, boom, or whatever, however you're getting to the tune, bratten, bratten, boom, two, one, two, bratten, bratten, boom, and you stop playing and you go back to the count-off. Practice count-offs the way that you would practice all these other aspects of, of, of timekeeping and transitions that I'm talking about. All right, so I'm going to leave it there. I thank you all for listening to my rant. I'm practically foaming at the mouth. I get so excited about these things. Um, please do let me know if you have any feedback. I always love hearing feedback from people. If you like something, if you don't like something, if you want me to talk about something, uh, it, it really makes me feel great when I know people are out there listening because sometimes I feel like I said, I throw these things out there and, and it seems like no one's listening. So I know you're out there. Be in touch. Uh, let's keep the conversation 
conversation going. And, um, and I'll see you next time around on The Daniel Glass Show right here only on Drummer's Resource. Have a great one, people.